This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, looking this morning at verses 57 through 68. Matthew 26, we resume our series in Matthew, uh, chapter 26, verses 57 through 68. Hear the Word of God. And those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face, struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Let's pray. Our Father, open to us, open to our eyes, open to our hearts, your word, that we might hear your truth, hear what you have to say to us from the scriptures today, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Having been betrayed by one of his own disciples, Jesus now enters into his passion, into his suffering. Uh, This, just the beginning of those events that would lead up to his crucifixion. Westminster Confession of Faith, the catechisms speak of Jesus' uh, estate of exaltation, his estate of humiliation. Uh, His humiliation began not with this, but with his coming into this world to begin with. Uh, with his taking to himself human flesh, a human nature, while leaving behind not his deity, but the glory of his deity, the manifest evidence of his deity, humbling himself to become a human being and to live here and endure what we endure in this world. 
But his, his humiliation certainly uh, reaches its climax, becomes most acute, beginning with these events that we read of here in this passage before us. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, when we were last in Matthew, we saw how Jesus was with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was uh, praying to his Father, asking that if there were some other way for the salvation of his people to be accomplished, apart from his enduring what he was going to endure the next day, may it be so. And yet, he was just as adamantly uh, strong in affirming, may your will, my Father, not mine, be done. And uh, it was in those moments then that Judas Iscariot, leading a, a band of soldiers and others, came and arrested Jesus there in the garden. Well, the first couple of verses of our passage here basically set two storylines in motion, two things that diverged from Jesus' arrest. One of them that we'll follow up on today begins in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, or Caiaphas, your pig, to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And that's the one that we're going to follow up today and see what happens there. This meeting of Jesus with the Sanhedrin. Um, John tells us that uh, Jesus also uh, had got, they took Jesus by to see Annas, who had been the high priest. It was actually the father-in-law of Caiaphas, uh, but Annas had been deposed, and uh, Caiaphas was now the uh, ruling high priest, although it's quite possible that Annas was the power behind the power. Uh, so they made a courtesy call on Annas first, but Caiaphas was the one who was running the show here. The second storyline uh, Matthew mentions in verse 58 uh, was Peter. As they were taking Jesus away, remember the passage last time ended, all the disciples left him and fled. Uh, but Peter, while f- having fled, nevertheless circles back and uh, wants to see What's going to happen? His curiosity got the better of his fear. And while not uh, being right there with Jesus, nevertheless, was following at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, part of his house there. Uh, And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Uh, Whether Matthew just means to see what would happen or what Peter really thought was just going to be the end of it all. Uh, it's, it's hard to determine. So, and Lord willing, we'll look at that and what happens with Peter next time. But today, we're following up with Jesus, who has been taken to the home of the high priest, and this gathering of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel, uh, the Sanhedrin made up of the, the priests, the scribes, the elders, the scribes, uh, teachers of the law. Uh, making up this this organization, this body known as the Sanhedrin. It's quite possible that uh, while the whole Sanhedrin gathered, uh, that not every single member was there. Quorum was much smaller than the whole body, uh, which was 70, uh, was 71, 72, with the high priest. Um, so they could function with fewer than that. And they gather. It's in the night. Uh, and we pick up then in verse 59 with what happens with Jesus. As we look at this passage, I want us to make three observations about it, specifically as uh, this whole situation relates to Jesus, indeed is centered on Jesus. Three observations to think about as we study this passage. 
In the first place here, Jesus' silence in the face of all of this testifies to the injustice of this assembly. Testifies to the injustice of it. Uh, There's debate over whether this was seen as a formal trial or not, maybe simply a hearing. One thing we do know, it was not impartial. This was not a trial so much as a lynching. If you'll turn back to earlier in chapter 26, uh, we read in verse 3, Then the chief priests, the elders of the people, gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Well, Judas uh, went on ahead and precipitated things, got it in motion during the feast. That was not their original plan. Nevertheless, their plan was to arrest Jesus and put him to death. Why? Because to them, Jesus was a threat. People were following him. His teaching was powerful. His holiness exposed their hypocrisy. On a political level, they may have been concerned that Rome would notice, and Rome would get concerned and take over, and they would lose their power and their influence over Israel. And so they're not arresting Jesus for information. They are arresting Jesus to uh, put him to death, to execute him, and they'll figure out a way to do that, whatever it takes. And so blasphemy is a good charge. As we read in the Old Testament, that was uh, under the laws of Israel at that time, a capital crime uh, to be put to death for blasphemy. And so we pick up in verse, verse 59, the chief priests and the whole council, the Sanhedrin, were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But though they, they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. One would suspect false was Matthew's word, not their word. They were looking for witnesses to be able to pin something on Jesus, to say something about Jesus that would give them grounds to proceed. Now, from Matthew's point of view, Jesus' point of view, from our point of view, they were false witnesses because you and I know Jesus had done nothing deserving execution, deserving capital punishment. Nevertheless, uh, from our point of view, they are false witnesses, but they're not concerned with that. They're just looking to get at least two people to meet the law's standards. Uh, Sort of ironic, isn't it, that they're concerned to have two witnesses to satisfy the law in order to unjustly murder somebody. Well, murder, that's that's redundant. Murder is unjust. Let's say unjustly execute someone. They want to make sure they've got their two witnesses so that it's all legal and neat and tidy. And so that's what they're doing, seeking false witnesses against Jesus. But they couldn't come up with people that would agree. They couldn't come up with two of them to say the same thing. And no doubt getting a little bit frustrated here, wondering how they were going to be able to move forward with this. But then we read in verse 60, at last two came forward and they had something to say. This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Is that what Jesus said? Did Jesus say something like that? Well, he said something like that, but that's not what he said. Uh, But close enough for their purposes. Now, we saw earlier in John 
what Jesus actually did say. He didn't say, I am able to destroy the temple. He said, destroy this temple, as they requested a sign. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But as John points out, he was talking about himself. He was talking about the temple that was his body, which, if you think about it, was the same thing. The temple, that building there in Jerusalem, represented the dwelling place of God with men. Right? First, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, that tent-like portable worship facility. Then later, the permanent temple there in Jerusalem, built by Solomon. We looked some at that last week. But what was the temple for? The Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, was the place where God was with his people. God with us, right? Jesus says, destroy this temple, his body, which was the fulfillment of that building, the temple, because Jesus himself was God with us. That's why, by the way, the church today is not the building, as useful as buildings can be. It's the people, because God dwells in the midst of his people and in his people through the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul can say that you individually are the temple of God and you collectively are the temple of God. God dwells with us today in and amongst his people by the Holy Spirit. But Jesus could say destroy this temple himself, this body that is God with you, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, they managed to get two people who had heard that or heard of that enough to give this garbled version of it, uh, which was precisely what Jesus, as we've seen, refused to do throughout his ministry, just to perform these, these tricks. You know, I, I, I'm able to tear down the temple and build it back in three days. Oh, well, he could have done that by his divine power, but that's precisely the kind of crowd-pleasing spectacle he refused to perform. But that's what they had on him. This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, of course, for the Jews, to say something like that about the temple would be scandalous. I mean, to tear down the temple. What a, what a heinous thought. What a wicked thing to say. But that's what these false witnesses were saying. By the way, sort of a, a subtext in this passage is the fulfillment, just boom, 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 fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Here, uh, Psalm 27, verse 12 says, Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. And so it was here. And so hearing this, the high priest stood up, verse 62, and said, Have you no answer to make, Jesus? What do you say to these things? What is it these men testify against you? Jesus remained silent. He doesn't answer. Again, uh, Isaiah 53, 7, uh, just like a sheep before her shearers is silent. Well, Jesus was silent before these who would uh, shear him, so to speak. Again, Isaiah 53, 7. But you see, his, his silence condemns. His silence refuses to grace this indignity, to grace this injustice with an answer, to honor it with a reply. And in a sense, his, his, his silence uh, exposes it as, as false, as wrong, as bogus, and that he's not going to participate in, in, a, in a fraud, in a scam such as this. But his silence goes even deeper than that. 
His silence grows out of his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. His, his silence shows that he is going, he's not going to make an effort to protect himself or defend himself because he recognizes that the purpose of all of this is his death. Now, if you and I had, had been accused of some crime that could have the death penalty, and we were put on the stand in a, in a regular procedure in a valid court uh, with all of the protections offered, uh, we would certainly speak in our defense, especially if we were wrongly accused. We would, we would speak and give evidence and explain why all of this is wrong. But none of that was happening here. All of this, if it was a trial, was being done incorrectly. One thing, they weren't supposed to be meeting at night. They were to be conducted during the day. Uh, there was also the rule that uh, that would apply that a capital verdict could only be could not be reached on the same day the trial began. It had to take at least two days. I guess part of the purpose of that was to allow everyone to sleep on it. Uh, but it couldn't you couldn't have a capital sentence handed down the same day that the trial began. And there were other injustices here. This was this was as I say a lynching, not a trial. The the goal was in view from. The beginning. But Jesus is silent. He doesn't defend himself because of his submission to the will of his Father. The issue had been decided finally and once and for all in Gethsemane that this was how it was going to be, and Jesus was going to submit to his Father and go through with this for you, for me. So Jesus' silence testifies to the injustice of this. He wouldn't grace it with an answer. Second observation we want to make here. Jesus' words, when he does speak, testify to the truth of his identity. He testified to the truth of his identity. Look at verses 62, 63, 64. When Jesus remains silent, the high priest then puts him under oath. I adjure you by the living God, appealing to God, looking for an oath in the name of God, very solemn thing. I adjure you by the living God, command you. In God's name, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. See, Caiaphas finally just cuts to the chase. You've got these two witnesses, and they bring up this garbled version of what Jesus said, and Jesus doesn't answer to that. But they knew what Jesus had been saying, and they knew what the talk around town was about Jesus. Could this be the Messiah? long-awaited Christ, Christ from the Greek, meaning the same word as the Messiah, a Hebrew word, the anointed one. Is this the Messiah? Is this the Christ? Caiaphas wanted to put the nail in the coffin, so to speak, uh, once and for all. He knew by asking Jesus this question that he caught Jesus. Because if Jesus says, well, no, I'm really not, his influence with the people is gone. If Jesus says, yes, I really am, his life is gone. Jesus, I order you in the name of God to tell me, are you the Messiah? There's a sense in which Jesus' entire ministry has led up to this point. Before the powers that be in Israel, under oath, to declare his identity. 
His answer basically has two parts. One, first part, is the answer he gave to Judas Iscariot when Jesus had said, one of you around this table would betray me in the upper room there. And they all say, is it I, Lord? Is it I? And finally Judas speaks up. He doesn't say, Lord. He says, is it I, teacher? Is it I, rabbi? And you'll remember that Jesus replied to him, you have said so. Literally, in Greek, just two words, you say. But something like that. You said so. You said it. That's exactly the reply that Jesus gives here to Caiaphas. You have said it. It's it's an affirmative, no doubt about it. Although it's slightly qualified, uh, it's almost as if in English we were to say, if you want to put it that way. Because Jesus knew that Caiaphas, along with so many of the Jews, had this, uh, this misguided understanding of who the Messiah was and what he would do. Much more of a political and military champion for Israel than the suffering servant of Isaiah. And so for Jesus to say yes to Caiaphas when he asked if he was the Messiah would in one sense be, be saying yes to something Jesus was not. Jesus was not going to lead them in a military rebellion against Rome and its oppression, its rule. But Jesus couldn't very well answer no, because regardless of however Caiaphas and the rest of this group misunderstood his identity, he was in fact the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. And so Jesus says, you have said so. But then he gives his own understanding of the Messiah. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus refers here to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. In Psalm 110, of his being seated uh, at the right hand of his father. You say so, Caiaphas, and yet your understanding of Messiah is all wrong. I'm not an earthly king. I'm not an earthly military leader. I am the heavenly king, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, and I am a divine warrior, battling not the forces of Rome, but the forces of hell. You say so, Caiaphas, but you see, this is the last time you'll see me like this. From now on, you're going to see me as the divine Son of God, the one who has risen from the dead, the one who reigns at the right hand of his Father until every enemy is put under his feet. Jesus made it clear to Caiaphas and those with him that their understanding of the Messiah was not too great. It was too small. He was no earthly king. He was none other than the divine king the Messiah, the Son of God. And so Jesus here testifies under oath that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the long-awaited King of Israel. That brings us then to the third observation. His suffering testifies to the hardness 
human hearts. Verses 65 through 68. This hardness shows itself in a couple of ways. It shows itself in a wrong conclusion, a wrong response to, to what Jesus said. Then the high priest tore his robes, a sign of outrage, a sign of indignity, a sign of grief, and said, he's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? See, Caiaphas had gotten what he wanted. Forget the witnesses. We've all heard him ourselves. Claim to be the Messiah. Claim to be the Son of God. Claiming to have this close relationship with God the Father. You've heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? The answer, he deserves death. See, they don't need these two bumbling witnesses. Well, he said, I'm able to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. They've heard Jesus. They've heard this claim to be the Messiah. They've heard this claim to deity, to divinity, and they're outraged. He deserves death. Is that true? Well, under Israel's laws, it it would be true if Jesus was lying or if he was deluded. But they didn't consider the other possibility that Jesus was telling the truth. And so the hardness of their heart here is seen. These people had either firsthand or by word on the street been aware of Jesus' teaching. Some of them may well have sat and listened to him for hours. Some of them may have witnessed or certainly at least heard about the miraculous signs that he had done. They had Jesus right there in their midst. They had Jesus right before. They heard from Jesus' own lips under oath. His claim to be the Messiah. And what is their answer? He's blaspheming. He's offending God. He deserves to die. Wrong conclusion. A lot of people make that conclusion, even today. And even if they don't respond to Jesus in outrage or hostility, they respond with indifference. So he is the the judge of heaven and earth. Yawn. You see, this is only by God's grace that you and I can believe. Unless Christ reveals you to himself, you will not believe and you cannot believe. Your heart is just as hard as their hearts. Your eyes are just as blind as their eyes. Unless the Father who sent Jesus grants that to you. These men were still in their sins. Some of them, them, perhaps later, believed. But right now, they were blind. They heard Jesus himself confess to be the Messiah. And all they heard was blasphemy. You see, their heart's condition is showed in this wrong conclusion. There were other people who heard these very things and believed and followed Jesus. But in the wrong conclusion, but also their hardened hearts were seen in their violent reaction. Uh, Just disgraceful. Verses 67 uh, and 68 They spit in his face. They struck him. The word means they punched him. It has to do with the knuckles. They punched him. And they slapped him. But they hit him hard. Luke tells us they blindfolded him, which led to their little game in 68, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, you Messiah. Who is it that hit you? Well, he's blindfolded. He can't see. They're not asking for him to tell the future. They're asking for him to give hidden knowledge. You know, we've got you blindfolded. And we punch you across the face. Okay, tell us who hit you, since you can't see, since you claim to be the Messiah. Who hit you? 
all of this totally illegal, of course, under Israel's laws, but also all of this fulfilling the Old Testament scripture. uh, Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. See, they rejected his testimony. They rejected the evidence because their hearts were dead in sin. Just like the hearts of people you live next to, people you work with, people you go to school with. They need God's grace. Maybe that's you. Maybe you need God's grace to open your eyes, to enable you to see who Jesus really is and to see what you have to do with him and what he has to do with you. That every one of us, one day, one way or another, willingly or unwillingly, joyfully or in terror, will bow before him, acknowledge that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, that he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that his name is above every name. Are you prepared for that? If if not, pray that God would open your eyes. Just ask the Father to show you who Jesus really is, so that you might believe in him, so that you might follow him, so that you might serve him, so that you might worship him. There are people today, perhaps people you know, who if given the opportunity would do this very same thing to Jesus. By God's grace, may we not be among that number. This is a hard passage if you love Jesus. But it's only the beginning of his sufferings. But dear friends, think about this. If you're a believer today, if Jesus is precious to you, that he endured these things for you. He endured all of this humiliation for you and for me. So that we could be forgiven. So that we could be right with God that we could know God, be with him in glory forever. And so even as we see Jesus willingly submitting to these things, let us give thanks to him and praise to him that he suffered this for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we read this passage. It is painful. And Father, it is unjust. It is an outrage. And yet, Father, we see the, the hardness the the reaction of the human heart in its own sin to you. Father, we pray for hearts to see the truth. We pray that you would give us living hearts, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us uh, faith, Father, trust in Jesus as a suffering servant, as the King of kings. We thank you for him. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you went through all of this, that we might be saved, that we might be with you one day in glory. We pray it in your name. Amen.